All right, so welcome to the uh, Middle East Center lecture. Uh, my name is Seth Hartog. I'm a lecturer from the government department and friend of the Middle East Center. Uh, we have tonight a very distinguished speaker with uh, a long track record of work both as an academic and researcher and as an international public servant, uh, Ali Kadri. He's currently a visiting fellow in the Department of International Development here at the LSE. Uh, he is conducting research on the political economy of the Arab world, some of which he's going to present to us tonight. And previously he served as head of the economic analysis section of the United Nations Regional Office in, in Beirut, in the ESPA office. Um, there are two more things I should say, and that is uh, we are recording the event tonight for a podcast, or at least we're trying to, so if you want to revisit that or tell any friends about it, you can then hopefully look at it on the web and, and then please do so. Uh, and if any of you are not on the mailing list for the events of the Middle East Center, then let us know just after the event. We'll jot down your email address and we'll put you into the distributor. Uh, and without further ado, I'll uh, open the chair for uh, I'll open the floor for Ali because we're a little bit over time already. Um, we're very very curious to hear what you've got to say about underdevelopment or development in the Arab world, development by encroachment in the Arab region. Well, I was trying to find a title. Thank you very much, Stefan, for the introduction. I was trying to find a fitting title for what has been happening in the Arab world. And, uh, and uh, you know, underdevelopment was not sufficient, really, because there is more uh, than underdevelopment uh, that's been going on. Because underdevelopment could imply that there are relatively some things which are going right, but there's so much that has gone wrong, in my opinion. And my opinion, which is trying, I will try to substantiate with the facts as they, as, as, as they develop, such that I couldn't call it really under development. So I uh, looked into the literature, and there is something called de-development. And, uh, and so the de-development applies fittingly for the situation in the Arab world. Now, it, this also is an old literature uh, that started out at the turn of the century. Uh, and the concept was referred to as development by encroachment and dispossession. It's an old colonial uh, describes development in the colonies. And to a large extent, I think a lot of what's been happening in the Arab world resembles uh, the, this, this old literature, which is now, you know, name, with name changing, uh, it's, been it's come to be called the development. Now, I, uh, so, there are, of course, 70, more than 70 definitions of development. There isn't a clear uh, 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 consensus on what, uh, what development is, and uh, the last of which is making people happy, which is a very good one, I think. Uh, uh, you know, and, uh, but, uh, but there are the, the two broadest, the more we generalize, I mean, the differences occur at the level of detail, but the more general, the more abstract we, we, we get, Without loss of content, then we can put some notion, you know, some, we can have some definition of development. And I've chosen the two broadest one, one that has to do with choice, the, 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 uh, uh, the Martyrsen uh, freedom paradigm. And that's about, uh, development is about, you know, people exercising their choices. Uh, and uh, the broad, that's, you know, the freedom, that's, that's called the freedom paradigm. The second one is about, which also ca captures the type of capital accumulation. Usually, development is about 
building capacity in a developing formation, and it's about accumulating capital so that we have an intricate supply chain which is infused with knowledge, which is going to give us uh, a certain product which has a lot of value added in it that we can either export or we have a strong demand component on the inside that we can actually sell on the inside, all the better. It has to do, so the two principal tenets here is one is the choice, freedom paradigm, and one is what gives the, the right of people, it gives them all the securities and the right to exercise their democratic freedoms, the right to participate in the political process. And the other one is the capital accumulation one. Now, if we combine these two, we can actually, you know, you know, the German philosophers were very good at, at making abstractions uh, uh, useful. Uh, sometimes I don't want it to be devoid because you're usually the example given is that when we have a, 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 a cat eating a mouse, we can actually abstract that, that to the point to where we can say this is a self-consumption of nature, but we can never get the idea that there is a cat eating a mouse, right? So we have, uh, so, so to avoid this, this, uh, this uh, you know, not, useful, not so useful abstraction, we can actually talk about, about uh, development com by combining uh, these two concepts and uh, of, of the capital accumulation and the freedom paradigm. We combine both and we make them sort of uh, the, the, how people mediate in the political process what, what gives them a better life in a way. So development broadly is the broadest thing we can say about this is the betterment of human life. Now, it, but in this particular case there's a mechanism to it. I'm going to say it is the outcome of people's struggles to improve their lives through the political process. Now, of course, the first thing you could think about here is immediately development has been denied to the Arab people because they haven't got the right to do this in the political process. So de development is development denied already at this level, at this juncture. And the second thing is, is that has there been capital accumulation? It is because sometimes without this rapport between the population and, 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 and the, the government, government, there could be a sort of paternalistic uh, corporatism where I know what you need and I'm going to you know, sort of uh, give you that. And, uh, but do we have that? And I think also that even on the level of capital accumulation, we haven't really uh, succeeded in, in, on that score as well. And there is data to prove that. Now, the problematic with the data is that the statistic itself is a service that is provided by a government and it's a knowledge infused service. So if there is an underdeveloped economy that cannot infuse knowledge into the production process to produce a, a, a high value added commodity or a high value added service, then it also cannot produce statistics because statistics is a sort of Highly, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing, thing to produce because we need to, you know, to have good statisticians, good uh, general, so right. So, but in the Arab world, the, there isn't a lot of data about the Arab world. I mean, the governments do not produce a lot of data, and this could be for two. Re uh, and I think the principal reason is they haven't got the capacity because the development is about building capacity. We haven't got the capacity to produce the data because data. It requires a lot of uh, a knowledge-based economy to be produced. So there is a problem. There is proof already that we haven't gotten that, uh, that, that, and it's not purposeful, right? And that, 
So the more advanced society is, the more advanced social formation is, the better data we have about that social formation. And the less advanced, the less it produces, because it's difficult to produce this data, because the whole production process is rather uh, uh, lethargic and not capable of producing that, uh, that process, right? So now, I haven't uh, <coughs> pressing that. So this is, uh, again, you know, maybe I should go back. There's something we call Article 1 of the International Covenants. Uh, in, and that is all peoples own and dispose of their natural resources. And again, that in the Arab world, I think, is... is uh, now. now, I'll take you to the empirics right away. And like I said, we haven't got the right to practice. Uh, 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 the freedom paradigm here is, is lacking. And also, I'm saying the capital accumulation paradigm is lacking. Here's some data. Um, here I've taken the Arab Asiatic states, that's Egypt, the bulk of the Arab world. I haven't taken the Maghreb yet, because the Maghreb is a, is a... I haven't got all the data for the Maghreb yet, so I haven't included the data in my research on the Maghreb yet. But the Maghreb has got a huge unemployment rates, which are starting, you know, official unemployment rates, around the 28 and the 27 percent, which is similar to, of the official rate, is similar to the rates of, of the Great Depression of the United States. And that's you know, that's been there for a long time. Now, the, the bracketed figures uh, are negative growth, per capita growth rate. So this is, you know, per capita growth rate conventionally, there are conventions about it. You need 3% in a developing economy, uh, 2 3%. And that means you're growing fine. You, you, with a 2-3% positive per capita growth rate, you create the job, you improve the living standards and all. But if you don't have that, that means you are almost on an island with little, uh, uh, with constant returns to scale, where you you add one additional person to that island, and nothing you don't grow any bigger, in a sense. So, uh, if you look at those figures, on average we have either zero or negative growth up to 2000, right? And this is like we're taking 7180. This is about 30 years span in which we were idle. Then comes the period of the 2002, the recent period where we've had the oil price hike. And of course, if you look at that graph here, then it shows that at the beginning, you know, this is the first oil boom and we grew and then we plummeted afterwards and then we started growing. Uh, and then the second oil boom starts around here. The data is, does not cover the very latest period that I'm, because they report data rather uh, late, so I'm, you know, we're looking. Now we have data two years or three years back that we can actually be almost certain of. The data, by the way, is extremely uh, uh, imperfect, to say the least. You know, all data is imperfect, but this is too imperfect in, in many senses. They, they, they do produce pretty bad data. But, uh, but it shows that uh, we have here a cycle uh, that is quite oil dependent. In a sense, you can all actually take the price of oil against this business cycle and smack, the business, the, the, the smack it against that. And we know that there has been probably uh, uh, an effort at diversification and so forth, um, uh, diversification, industrialization and all that, but we haven't seen this hasn't really, in the, in the grand picture, in the bigger picture, we haven't seen a real impact of that. Moreover, a lot of the industri industrialization that has happened is a sort of uh, 
uh, imported industrialization. So we import the factory and we employ, import the engineer and we don't have the intricate supply chain that is going to feed this production process. So it's almost a fake industrialization that is that doesn't really uh, uh, allow for the forward and backward linkages within the economy to, uh, to uh, give us uh, a, a, an industrial uh, project which is related to a culture of industry where it produces the knowledge associated with it and, and, and it taps into this knowledge and creates a sort of virtuous circle in the end where we're going to have uh, betterment of, of conditions and dynamic productive, positive dynamic productive growth. So, so this is this is the picture. The picture, actually, if you up until this point, the slope of that average line there is is not so high as well. It's about zero percent, you know, half a percentage point, right? So, overall, the picture is quite uh, torpid. It's not it's it's not dynamic. We haven't seen. This is the region I'm talking about. Fourteen Arab states. 11 or 12 of them are oil exporters, right? And, this, and, and I'll tell you why, for instance, here, at this point here, if you look at the World Development Indicators of the World Bank, which reports the same, the same figures are reported to the United Nations, they're actually the same thing. Saudi Arabian per capita income, to give you an idea, was $18,000 in 81. Now, in 2002, it's about 6,500. That's a three-fold drop. And that's, because that's associated by the fact that oil prices went from uh, uh, so high to about $9.99, <coughs> 2000, right? $9 uh, in nominal prices. Now, in real prices, we, it's very difficult to, to, in constant prices to get a good figures. But the slump in real per capita income <coughs> is huge. Now, there aren't any reports of poverty in Saudi Arabia that come out very you know, clearly. We don't know what poverty is like. But that will, in, that will certainly make a picture for poverty. The only, one I've, the only time I've seen any poverty report is I come across a paper which says, in, at around 2002, which says that uh, the poverty rate, the national, uh, is, is 19%. There's 19% uh, of the population is living below the national poverty line. And that was, uh, that in a country like Saudi Arabia, uh, that was uh, startling, uh, to, to say the least, right? And that was the time when we've seen all the, uh, as well, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the turmoil that occurred at, at, in the region as well. So, uh, so this is the picture. Now, another thing <coughs> is, is pretty important to look, when we look at the empirics, we're still looking at the picture here, uh, 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 at the empirical picture. Another thing to note is uh, <coughs> the employment uh, generation of these economies. Because the employment, employment generation is the key link between the betterments of people's lives and, and, and economic growth. Now, we see that there hasn't been any, any uh, uh, these uh, economies do not produce jobs from uh, a sui generis type of performance. They do, they, most of the production uh, most of the income is accrued from rent, and it doesn't. It, they job, jobs are created in the public sector, in the domain, in the domain of the public <coughs> sector. The private sector jobs are 
uh, non-manufacturing jobs, non-productive jobs. There's a negative or zero productivities in these economies always. This, these are figures from the ILO and from the World Bank and from the United Nations, which we use often in our reports to the General Assembly. Uh, so so the, there is to the Economic and Social Council. So there is that element uh, of, uh, you know, of poor, a poor response of employment generation to economic growth. And that's because the rent component is a huge component. And job expansion occurs through clientelism in the public sector. Now, uh, we've just looked at, at one period. There is uh, something we call the law of labor demand, which is an empirical law in economics, which says that for every two or three percentage points of growth, there is going to be a 1% reduction in the unemployment rate. And this is an area which had the highest unemployment rate. It's literally the official unemployment rate is the highest. Now, uh, it reports the highest unemployment rate, uh, unashamedly so. Uh, and uh, so the law of labor demand does not apply here, first of all. There is something that doesn't click. That's because of the rent component, the huge rent component and income. And the way rent seeking is structured around that rent component through the apparatus of the state. Uh, but uh, it's there in, for, one, for the first part, when we had this oil boom, we thought that they were going to be creating a lot of jobs, but unfortunately we didn't. We didn't. There was almost like something like nearly 17 to 18 percent growth in the first three years of the oil boom, and we've seen only a one or two percentage point reduction in the unemployment rate. So there's something is anomalous in this case, something that did not click, and we know why it did not click, but it shouldn't have uh, done this. Now, the there's something else about this labor market. It's a labor market which is different than any labor. When you have a, a situation where the dynamic sector, the productive dynamic sector, is very small and it doesn't generate jobs for many people, then you have a whole bunch of youth population, right, which is incapable of getting uh, into the dynamic productive sector and, and getting jobs, right? So what you have is is a, a different type of labor market. It's not the same labor market that, you know, it's, it's apples and oranges now. It's not the same labor market that exists here or in Denmark or anywhere else. Uh, it's a labor share. Next, if you look at income distribution through the labor share, it's extremely low. It's about 20 to 25% relative to 70% in more advanced socialized economies. Uh, and that, so you're immediately looking at a place where it's quite anomalous. That says a lot of money income, which is coming in as rent and being appropriated uh, through the, the state apparatus and through the private sector uh, in a quite an inequitable way. And, and so, uh, and what else do, uh, do we know about this? Productivity, as I said, is zero or negative. And I will show you the productivity tables after a while. Uh, and also, there is, uh, there is, these are official, in the official figures, we are looking at the highest unemployment rate. Now, if you consider other measures of first of all, none of, one out of these, one out of these economies uses the ILO standards of measuring unemployment rates. Now, the ILO standards are not actually good standards to measure the unemployment rates when there is, uh, below subsistence and malnutrition uh, uh, in countries where, you know, po abject poverty conditions exist. 
So uh, if we apply, if we take into consideration disguise and employment and underemployment and the fact that so many people who sit in public offices doing nothing and so on and so forth, we find that we don't have a place where somebody is exchanging some productive labor services for a wage. So it's not really a market. A market is where I take something, a good, and I say I want to exchange that good for money. I sell my labor service for money. But here what's happening is the labor that I am providing is non-productive, and I'm getting money, and in return, I'm actually paying my, giving back my submissiveness. So I've not consent, I, I discussed it with a friend, and he thinks submissiveness is the more appropriate uh, term to use. So we cannot apply the same standards and the same criteria uh, to, uh, to study a, a market of this nature already. So we, it, it, it's not simply a, a, a quantitative difference. When the qualitative difference is that high, then we should look for something deeper and something qualitative in the construction of a social for, uh, 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 structure that produces this sort of situation, right? And now, again, another thing that's another empirical observation, which is the investment rate in this region. The investment rate is the kernel of, you know, of, of, of of how society, what society puts into its future, what sort of money it takes away, that's what we've learned in first year economics, and uh, puts it in, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, what sort of money society takes from the present to invest in the future. Now, there are also conventions about the investment rates in developing and, non -deve and underdeveloped formations. It should be high in developing formations in order to basically galvanize all the existing resources. And development is about not the mobilization of financial resources, it's about the mobilization of real resources. And in this particular case, this is the actual investment rate for this region, as, and it's an important macro indicator because it is this indicator that actually has the most impetus on managing the output rate as well, and the kind of output, uh, the dynamic output, that actually raises productivity, and I'm speaking always on the accumulation <coughs> capital side, raises and creates jobs for further, you know, for uh, jobs that are actually linked to a whole structure that is, uh, that is, meant to create the intricate supply chain that we call uh, development, right? I'm just sort of cutting uh, short many things that I should say, but in order to show, come straight to that picture and show that also here we have almost a declining investment rate and the investment rate is far below, it's actually the lowest, the lowest globally. So now what we have is an, uh, an employment rate which is the highest globally, and an investment rate which is the lowest globally. And this despite the fact that we've earned, we're earning a lot of money from abroad through capital account surpluses that we have and balance of payment uh, uh, positions that were actually positive as a result of the last oil boom. So these are the macro figures. This is not about studying a certain you know, area or a certain factory that's done well. This is the macro figure that actually gives us the whole picture. And 
So we are kind of now having uh, a, 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 a situation where uh, we, we're holding records already in this region, right? We have a very low uh, per capita income uh, over the long term. We have a very high unemployment rate and the highest, and we have a very low investment rate, which is the lowest globally. And we also have, as well, as I'm going to show you later, uh, progressively we've had the highest income inequality rate as well from the, 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 the measures that we can gather. So it's an area, it's, if you're looking at a patient, that is, a, this is a patient with high blood sugar, high uh, tension, it's, it's really a very, it, it requires immediate emergency, you know, sort of uh, uh, treatment. Uh, and so I, it's not a question, it's no longer a question of whether we have good machines that are producing uh, a lot of value added. It's, it's, no, it's no longer. It's, it's, it's not a question of whether we're investing in plant and equipment, but I, it's more so in the way power control and decision making are articulated between the regional and the extra-regional social formations. I will stop at that for now, then I will come back to it and say what I mean by this articulation of the national with the uh, foreign elites that is actually distributing and allocating resources uh, over such a long time. Here we're looking since 1970. <coughs> so we have a long perspective. This is not a new something that occurred in the last 10 years. This is something that's been going on forever and almost. And we and everybody paid a blind eye for it. Somebody will empower national power and those friends of the national power who are on the outside were actually happy with the situation of this resource misallocation that was occurring in these economies. And it's not that the, the European Union, for instance, didn't know. It knew, because these are figures which are published yearly, and we know that they occur like that. It's, it's figures that are on record in the annals here and there. So, uh, Again, there's some argument that say, uh, you know, oil has been, uh, you know, the natural resource curse and, and the Dutch disease curse. Oh, Dutch disease is Dutch. This is an Arab disease, first of all. It's a very strong disease, which is called the Arab disease. Because for a Dutch disease, we need to have industrialized to deindustrialize, and we haven't. So the exchange rate movement has nothing to do with the rate of industrialization that we're having. In fact, the fact that we have such cheap energy should make us industrialize at a higher, at a faster rate, and such a skilled labor force as well. But that's not a Dutch. And, and the, as, so far as the oil curse is concerned, or the, the curse of uh, resources, this, this it's, it's oil does not curse. It's the people who control the oil that are going to curse. So there are, uh, you know. So basically, we know that oil dichotomizes an economy. It does, you know, create a, a huge sector with a, a huge capital invested in it that em employs very few people, but should, that shouldn't make social policy or job creation be limited to the fact that we're now going, not going to employ people in a different area which is socially remunerative and not simply uh, remunerative on the basis of economic uh, 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 returns in the short term. Because development is about building what is socially valuable for the long term because what is socially valuable in the long term gives us back in uh, in a pecuniary fashion in a monetary fashion pays pays for the for the effort that we've done now 
But that requires the longevity, the long time horizon, the perspective, the institutions, and the security, and the sovereignty, and all these issues that we take you know, for granted probably here that don't exist there. Uh, so the long term doesn't exist because these are institutions, are state institutions, and other institutions that are quite fragile or malformed that do not allow for the longevity in, uh, to, to basically deploy resources over the long term. And, and that is a, an essential uh, problematic here. Uh, now, uh, another, so there are other, other empirics that are long ago it was said, it was said whatever, this was said of the mercantilist age during the Industrial Revolution, whatever merchant capital dominates, backward condition dominates. Well, here we don't have the same merchant capital anymore, but we haven't got industrial capital. We've only had commercial capital tapping into oil rights. And we have weak financial intermediation between these financial resources and the deployment of real resources that are needed to make our economy work, right? There is another problematic area. This, some people like to call that the rent culture or the rent seeking. There's a lot of sociological work on that. Uh, not familiar with all of it, but one thing I'm familiar with is this rent from a sitting idol gives me the pleasure of having, earning money without any effort. And as a social model, it's a de deleterious model. It is a destructive model of, you know, without any effort, earning money. You know, Keynes has called for the euthanasia of the rentier, Schumpeter has called for the euthanasia of the rentier, and I don't want to call, you know, say what others have, have there is a preponderance of, uh, of, because most of them are food dependent and that exposes them on the security front, there is a preponderance of commercial activity. And most growth is import led because the import bill is so huge that all the rent is, and the circuit of capital uh, functions in a way that we are going to earn this foreign cash and buy things with it and our GDP is going to be uh, calculated on the basis of the value added, which we've earned, uh, which is the markup on the imported price that we uh, that we've had. So you have only really a preponderance of commercial activity, and uh, uh, and import it's an import-led growth situation. And in this situation, what you have is. Uh, an economy that leans ever more towards the informal and service sector, and the informal sector is huge. There is, uh, in, in heavily populated economies, we see uh, a lot of people that actually have to push, uh, you know, uh, a cart in order to survive at, uh, at the minimum subsistence level. And uh, so these are some of the empirical objects. Other, you know, other, as I said, I will come to the productivity, the issue of productivity. This is what I could get from over 20 years for some countries from the uh, KILM, the ILO uh, labor market indicators. As you can see, the labor productivity measures are mainly all negative or near zero. So is, that, is that compound annual growth rate? Or no, this is, this is an average over 20 years for these economies. Okay. In 1980 to 2001, and reported that just from the labor, the international labor office. And there's another thing. There's something we call an unemployment trap because 
at the same time, we see such high unemployment rates in this region, but yet we see a lot of foreign workers working in this region at very low wages, which means that there's, we're just allowing the commercial activity and the, com uh, and the commission, if we can say that word, to basically run the course of things because he doesn't want to pay any higher wages and lock in resources. Because the, the, first, the first developmental economists, when they started talking about how to break the vicious circle of underdevelopment, they talked about something we call the big push, right? Which is increase your supply, increase your demand, and if you, you bring your people to work on the production, in the, uh, those who produce things are going to buy things, and that was uh, Merckse and others who, the big push was sort of the panacea for development. But it still, it makes a lot of sense that you need people to work and be able, like Henry Ford, he says, well, if I'm paying $1 for, for, for the workers who can't afford my T-model, I'm going to make it $5. So because my workers have to, uh, the Fordism sort of, sort of situation, we haven't got this Fordism occurring here. And we haven't got this, this cycle, uh, so what we have is a cycle which also resources, money resources, through this service sector which hires a lot of uh, uh, people in abject poverty conditions and abject uh, uh, living conditions as well, uh, because they lack the rights uh, uh, under, the, uh, 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 under the national uh, conventions on labor. Uh, and, and so we have a, 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 an, something we call an unemployment trap. That means we're importing labor, and yet we are actually, uh, uh, we have the highest unemployment rate in the world. And that we're importing labor, that we have to, we can pay less than the labor we're paying. That's because we, as, as we, are the, ones, the ones who are paying, have a strong hold on the political process to dictate what the labor process should be like. There is no conflict of interest to tell me, you know, as a, in fact, I've, I've known that in some countries where there has been an effort to nationalize the labor force, to get the labor force to do the work, uh, it so happens that uh, they, uh, you go to the labor ministry and they tell you, well, we can't do it because the major figures in the country will not allow us to do it. We say we put it down on paper. But uh, practically, we can't do it because these people are actually the power brokers, and they tell me not to do it. And this is an actual fact. It's not. It's not something. It's, an, it's something I've seen. <laughs> and another thing is, of course, is uh, you know, one more thing is also the, the region also exports skilled labor as well, and it exports a lot of the skilled labor it exports is formed by the unskilled labor which reproduces that laborer who comes from Asia and we're, we're paying a cheap la uh, wage for. So the, cheap la uh, the cheaply remunerated, there is no such thing as cheap labor, with cheaply remunerated labor helps, like it's a, a surrogate mother in the family, helps in the reproduction of, of the family and the le provides the leisure time to form the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, the skilled labor, which in the end, because this is a non-productive and dynamic economy, is forced to work abroad. Because I teach a, a labor economics course at the university, and I ask at the end of the course, how many people will be working in, the, in, this, uh, in, in, in this part of the world? And I can tell you, more than 95% will say they're traveling, they want to travel, or they want to go abroad. 
So it, and most of these uh, students I was teaching, they have maids at home which come from Asia and that have actually uh, helped them, you know, uh, given them the, 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 the head and, and the leisure time with which they can, you know, uh, form themselves. In them. So there is a, 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 a division of labor globally that's, you know, that's almost uh, related to the, period, the picture becomes very complex if we're going to look at how the system of accumulation is tapping, taking social resources at underpriced value, uh, at prices below value, and creating labor, skilled labor, that is going to also provide value in another economy and so forth. So there's a very intricate and dynamic picture at work in the global accumulation system. Right? And there is, of course, behind all this, whenever there is an accumulation process which is doing that, then we must look at the articulation of class border alliance, which forbids the people of these, uh, the peoples of this region, from locking in resources. Because now, what we want to do is lock in our resources. We want our educated and skilled workers <coughs> to stay behind, not to not to leave, because we've worked, we spent money on making them. Ah, okay. And we want our uh, 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 money to stay in as much as possible in, in boosting our investment rates. We want these things, locking in resources. But there is a, a power structure that is not allowing us to lock in resources. <coughs> and let's look for that. Well, another thing about this, this situation. Before we start, there's another empirical point, and that is something that I... Uh, uh, <coughs> Uh, I spent very little on that. It's about the time horizon. As I said earlier, there are uncertainties that actually collapse the future into the present. So the, if we call that uh, the intertemporal allocation of resources, we don't have an intertemporal allocation of resources. The only time that exists is the present or the intermediate future. We don't have a long term. So we cannot put money into huge capital and production assets that are going to be uh, functioning and have a gestation period that is long enough to give pay back the investment and the sunk cost and the initial cost that we put in at the, at the very beginning. The time horizon is different in conditions of uncertainty. There is, it's not a risk situation, John Maynard Keynes had differentiated between risks and uncertainty. We cannot actually use a smooth uh, 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 probabilistic function to study the risk. It's not a business cycle that occurs in, uh, that has its sinusoidal type of uh, uh, behavior. It is a business cycle that could come to an abrupt halt at any one time. So the future, uh, so profits and all investments is, has to go in and it's ephemeral, it has to make the money and come out right away. And that's why we see, for instance, now in the region, with the emphasis and the shift in this oil boom on the private sector allocating resources and adoption willy-nilly of a neoliberal paradigm, uh, we see that uh, bubbles have grown in stock market, in stock, poorly regulated stock markets, in which banks use put options, you know, sort of it's, it's, it's a gambling situation, right? But it's a gambling with very high returns and with sure, uh, with no, no uncertain losses at all. Uh, and it is a situation where everything is done in the short term and money is drawn from the short term. Now, uh, that's the, the, the point I want to make. 
I skip that because it has to do with the capital per worker measure, and it's been declining, which is actually not bad for employment generation. It's a, it's a good thing to have low, uh, <coughs> low productivity and not shedding labor, because uh, it implies, because we cannot shed labor, really, as I said, the situation is that when you had the Great Depression in the United States, for instance, uh, 25, 26% 27% unemployment rates, you had the New Deal. The state had to intervene and underwrite all investments and create jobs and so forth. Here, we haven't had that. So what the public sector did, which unfortunately our sister's organizations in the Bretton, the Bretton Woods organization were calling for a downsizing of the private sector. But we downsized the private, the, the, uh, of the public sector. We don't size the public sector, but we haven't got a, vi a, a, a vibrant private sector for people to go into. There must be alternatives. And of course, when you have such huge financial resources, which is uh, uh, you know, uh, driving financial resources away, then we truly have. Uh, so, as I said, but Now, another thing is about this uncertainty is actually there's the impact of war, right, for, on the region. Because this is the region with most wars. Wars are uh, inherent and necessary, uh, uh, as it is, uh, for uh, the global accumulation process. Now, this is uh, just to show you, this, this is the total money that the region makes. The total income is the pink line. The, the hypothetical line. This is a hypothetical situation. It's not the real situation. The real situation is much graver and much bigger to calculate, much more difficult to calculate. But I'm going to just use a hypothetical example to show you what wars do in this particular instance. And this is a very simple example. And, and we were, this is Iraq war here, for instance, when the first Iraq war. And we have just before the second Iraq war. And if the war hadn't occurred, we would be growing at this rate. But because the war occurred, we moved to the blue line, which is below. The, the whole region moved below to the blue line. And the war created the, the air of uncertainty, which also has driven resources out from the whole region. Because nobody's going to invest in a region that cannot sustain at the long run. So what, what we have here is a huge loss as a result of the war. And this war, either be, uh, be, be it uh, 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 real as a, when it occurs, or the prospects of it, in, in fact, act almost as a very real uh, disincentive towards the accumulation of capital, all sorts of capital, human capital, and otherwise in this region, right? And now push for time. Uh, uh, okay, I said. Oh, I'm doing that. Well, an another thing is we've seen the financial resources uh, uh, doing what, they, what they're doing. Another thing about taxation in this region. This is the region also with the most indirect taxation, uh, not, not direct taxation. There's no such thing as a progressive income tax. The people who are going to be taxed are the people who hold power. So it's very difficult to, with with the, in this situation to tax people like that. And so presumptive taxes are impossible to, to, to tax. So you can get well, you can get the World Bank coming in and saying, for instance, in Yemen, let's introduce an indirect tax to lower uh, the, the budget deficit from 5% to 2%. But it, it doesn't say, let's not, let's, let's tax 
the balance of the oil in Yemen, which Yemen is an oil exporting country, which are going, uh, which are uh, uh, making a lot of money, and 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 their the Saudi counterparts uh, in in, uh, in in basically uh, putting back the wealth and giving this money wealth an actual life, an actual physical and social <coughs> life in this territory. So presumptive uh, uh, tax and presumptive redistribution is very difficult when you've got a rentier in hold of the state. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation when you have no rentier in hold of the state, but imagine a rentier in hold of the state. So someone with a lot of money who, has, who holds the state. So there is no, there is, it's impossible to push through a progressive income tax. And this is from the world development uh, indicators. Uh, now, this is savings and investments. And for most of the world, for a long time, the developing world has a problem with savings, with money savings. Right? Now, unlike, unlike all this region, of course, as you can see, uh, we, this, the top line is the savings line, and the bottom line is the investment line. And you can see that the investment line, that's the line I've shown before, which is actually doing uh, you know going down and the savings line moves with the oil price so this is the first oil boom that's the second oil boom we've got we get more money and the money is an unrequited transfer that means the money goes abroad uh, and uh, mainly in t bills or weapon purchases and so forth uh, or capital flight we've measured capital flight capital flight is tremendous i mean from what we've measured in all the economies there is a significant portion of the income that goes uh, uh, into the category capital flight uh, and uh, most of this adequate transfer that means it's an uncashed check it's a check that will not be uncashed and when the regime gets toppled the swiss banks will probably or whomever is going to repossess the money and spot or part of it and so on and so forth. So it's a very uh, uh, distorted institutional setup uh, in many respects. But you can see how much money there is. And this is from the. Uh, so again, there's high income inequality. Now, we don't produce Gini coefficients. Because Gini coefficients, again, are the sort of data that is quite, quite uh, difficult to, to, to measure, right? Uh, uh, but, but the Texas Instrument Database, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, James uh, Galbraith uh, has uh, some measures of income inequality for the Arab world and these measures actually put the Arab world at the top of, above sub-Saharan Africa slightly above because sub-Saharan Africa and the Arab world are very similar in many respects but the level of income is, is lower in sub-Saharan Africa uh, it, it, uh, and it's, it's these for the measures that we have it's the highest income inequality and <coughs> Now, uh, I'm going to get, because of uh, uh, the time crunch, uh, try to uh, read the two concepts, the, the two things that the region lacks. I'm going to think out loud, and I'll just put this down on paper from my readings of the situation. And w the first thing that it lacks is security. Security is, includes all types of security. Security is human security, the right to shelter. Security is best understood as a totality. It's, it's inseparable, uh, something, with three interrelated levels. National security, including the protection of the right of people to self-determination. Democratic security through the promotion of citizenship and human security and the right to social protection and decent. This is 
a concept of security that cannot be differentiated. In the Arab world, for instance, Francis would say that human security is actually determined by national security. So, in fact, we see now, for instance, that because Iraq is exposed on security front, yesterday uh, Al Jazeera English says there's more than one million abandoned children in Iraq. So uh, there is a huge level of human security occurring uh, in, in, in part of the world. And then I will go to sovereignty. And sovereignty of not... Uh, these manifestations of security are best considered not separately, but either in their wholeness or as a combination, which... Uh, national security is a direct product of the degree of alliance between the laboring classes and the ruling regime, or the distance that ruling regimes keep from imperial power centers. This has to hold primacy. The practice of realizing national security through the mediation of the struggle of the labor, laboring classes and the changing power structure of class alliances and fronts will form the substance of sovereignty. So I'm trying now, I, you know, once you go to success, ever since Locke and, uh, Locke and Hobbes, uh, the concept of security is closely related with the concept of so sovereignty. So since I've talked about security, I must also talk about sovereignty. And since I've related so security to the security of working people, I must make the substance of sovereignty actually the security of working people. So if we don't have, if we have hungry people, we are not sovereign in a way. And we don't have, and, and that's, that's really the crux of the uh, So when, for instance, I introduce neoliberal reforms that are going to basically make eggs and other, uh, and healthcare and, and things of this nature uh, prohibited to my working population, then I have exposed my national security. As, uh, my national, and I have exposed, and I'm less sovereign as a result of that as well. So sovereignty, in a sense, is a Lockean type of sovereignty, where the sovereign is not only the one who defends, you know, but also the one who provides as well. So its provision is, is just as important and inseparable from uh, that. And so the, now we need to, since we said this is development denied, and I'm finishing soon, uh, we need to basically re-establish the right to development, and which is synonymous with the right of people's security as defined previously, the degree to which international relations and economic imbalances, in particular the dollar as an overstretched global currency, may have become dependent on either the prolongation or the outcome of conflicts in the Arab region is now greater than it was before. We've seen that the global crisis has intensified in scale. The recent financial crisis has been quite intense. And the dollar, of course, is an overstretched currency in all of this, which is underwritten by huge global, global imbalances, which is uh, a reflection of which is the uh, uh, trade deficit of the United States and the huge indebtedness of the United States itself. Smoothing the transition. Now, how do we situate the Arab world, which is now, we see, we've seen a world which is dependent on this control of oil, this articulation of power, which is controlling oil, and how it would, there is an articulation of power which is monolithic. How do we overcome this articulation of power, which, so smoothing the transition from an international order by the degree to which foreign powers exercise influence and control in the region, runs counter to their obligations uh, under the, the declaration of uh, 
Article 1 of uh, the Economic and Social Rights and Article 1 on the right of people to exercise uh, the right to self-determination. I think we need to demystify this process in the region and situate matters accordingly. That's how I, I'd like to end this in, in a way, uh, just by saying that this crisis in the Arab world is related to the crisis in the global accumulation process. And there is, seems to have been a sort of consent and a sort of people have overlooked the, uh, 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 the conditions of the Arab world. The fact that I said this, this has been going on for 30 years. Why would have the rest of the world overlooked all the human rights violations, including the denial of development, which is also a right. Development is a right. It's enshrined in, in various United Nations resolutions and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So why was, de was development denied? Why were all other human rights denied? There is an articulation of power which has made it so. This articulation of power is cross-national. It doesn't have a national identity. To speak of nationalism and of cultural values as determining the process would be concealing something else behind it. Uh, and, and I'm not being you know, uh, very uh, uh, tactful here. Uh, so there is a cross-border national alliance that's making sure that these things exist and that overlooked the process of the popularization of the Arab people, the uh, abuse of the Arab people by these, by, by, by these regimes, right? And, uh, uh, and then we need to, and the crisis is related to the, to, the, to, to the fact that the United States is experiencing a severe crisis. Uh, and it needs to continue to control this region in order to ascertain itself as, as, as uh, an imperial uh, uh, power which accrues a lot of rents from its position as the imperial power. That's it. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. There was certainly a lot of food for thought. Um, I'm tempted to abuse Chairman's privilege and ask the first question, but I'll, I'll hold back uh, because I'm sure that uh, a lot of you will have potentially more interesting questions to ask than I have. So um, the floor is yours, and uh, please raise your hand if you want to <coughs> comment. Or I'll, I'll start on the left side. I'll start with that gentleman, and then I'll work my way slowly to the right. Thank you very much for that uh, wonderful and very thought-provoking um, overview. Just one problem, uh, one danger, is that uh, for the 30 years you've referred to, um, in the West, uh, I'm not an Arab, but I'm a neighbor. So um, I just say, the West has been saying nothing is wrong because the governments in, in the Arab world were in favor, if you like, and they're shutting up the eye to all the issues. Now we've gone, the pendulum is swung completely the other way, and the recipe that you are describing is, is the recipe for disaster. I mean, basically, there is no good news. Isn't there a little bit of, um, I mean, is there something in between the two? I mean, you paint a very dark picture. It's not rosy, but it can't be that. And then the second thing is, a lot of the Arab um, economies are not as oil-based as you assume them to be. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, Lebanon, Jordan, etc., etc., they're not oil-based. So some of the issues that you raise are not the issues of oil um, rent uh, issues. Um, and then some are actually not, to, not so dependent on oil income. 
So it, you, you're painting this big picture for the entire region, the causes, or the fact that it's not the same throughout. Okay. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Well, actually, Lebanon and Jordan, as I said at the beginning, are the only two countries which are probably geopolitically rent-based rather than oil rent-based, because there's also the geopolitical rent element, that, uh, which is related to the oil as well and to the fact that the oil is so relevant. And the second thing is, is it's not a picture that I painted rosy or, or dark. It's, it's, you know, the fact, the figures. Uh, actually, for this region that I've just calculated, and these are not my figures, really. These are the United Nations and high low figures. They, they just show that basically this is the region which has high inequality, high income inequality, low investment rates, and, and, and so it's just this. This is, and I'm not going to describe if I'm look, going to look at at why we've had uh, uh, an Arab intifada. <coughs> Economic reasons alone cannot explain the formation of consciousness towards an intifada. The formation of, uh, of revolutionary consciousness is a different, is a, is a much more complicated process than simply to base it on the fact that these numbers exist as such. But I'm just showing that the, the, the matter in a, in a, in a, in a very uh, raw sense, that it, hasn't, it wasn't good, there were policies in the second oil boom that have actually worsened the situation. We've seen, for instance, with, with the oil, second oil boom, Egypt, for instance, which you know, uh, didn't have a balance of payment problem, grew tremendously but, uh, by about 6% for the last 10 years or so. But also income inequality grew tremendously as well. So we've seen uh, reports last year from the UNDP saying, despite 30 years of economic growth in Egypt, we have 30% malnutrition and children. So you can't have high economic, in, high income growth and at the same time experience malnutrition in children unless your income distribution is actually very, very fluid. And that's actually the case. I've measured this, this thing, that I measured myself, the income distribution from the, the data that I could have. So it is not a question of these are only the recipe uh, for, uh, uh, you know, there are policies that were pursued that actually almost uh, uh, reified, you know, uh, that the market and the neoliberal policies uh, will solve all our problems. And let's just uh, free the market and allow the private sector to take over things. But as I said, the private sector will not involve, will not tie down itself in a region where the state is not going to act as a guarantor for its investment. Over France has a had a guarantee over uh, long-term investments that are going to create jobs. Many states have that. The Arab world relinquished some of the principal uh, uh, tools that it could deploy in its uh, policy uh, arsenal in, uh, in, 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 uh, in uh, galvanizing and in uh, generating uh, uh, growth, uh, uh, job, uh, uh, developmental growth, because growth alone does not develop. Uh, growth and development are two different things. Uh, especially this type of growth. This, this growth has been anti-developmental, in fact. We've, grew, we've grown but because of the income distribution and the, the type of repression that existed, we couldn't really do better. And it's just the raw picture, really. You don't get revolutions uh, of this nature uh, uh, unless you have some economic element to them. Of course, there's the repression element and the fact that a human being by nature would desire to have a freer life and more uh, and so forth. But there's also the fact that, you know, if we go back to Bertrand Russell's 
uh, acceptance uh, speech of the Nobel Prize. Uh, now, at what level of of uh, of famine do you give, or do you give a man a sack of wheat or the right to vote? I mean, here we we need to give these, you know, we first denied them right to vote, and then we didn't give them the wheat as well. So we have a situation which is quite quite crucial and quite aggravating, uh, and and it certainly is uh, a, a, a dismal. If you not say, we need basically now the first step is that people have acquired a say in the political process, the right to participate and to organize. But we need now to reverse the old policies that we've adopted, like a Deus ex machina, which were inappropriate for us. As, it, as we, I have just shown you, the labor market here is completely different. So we can't actually apply uh, uh, productivity growth for employment generation because we haven't got productivity growth. We must apply a social criteria that's quite different and pays, pays for itself over the long term. And th this, this criteria, I think, it, generally speaking, I mean, when the spinning thrustles uh, were introduced in the Industrial Revolution here, uh, uh, the, you know, children were, were uh, actually uh, employed uh, uh, because they had small fingers. And everybody in England uh, praised the fact that now we can employ children in, in, you know, in, in, in positions that would help, you know, that would help their parents. So child labor was not something which is morally abhorrable as it is now. Uh, but we are at a stage in history where the technology is so labor-saving in itself. I mean, we haven't benefited from a spinning frost tools in the Arab world. We're importing technology that already is, by its very nature, labor-saving. So we must devise a, a, a different approach, a different criteria, which is, has to have a lot of uh, social elements in the creation of jobs and employment. Because as I said, unemployment <coughs> is, is huge, and wage poverty, uh, informal wage, uh, informal sector poverty wages are also huge. So we have got a situation which is, uh, in many respects, uh, uh, not so rosy, if you like to say. So I just, you know, when you when you have a revolution, the situation must have been really not so rosy. And it's, I am just saying that there are people who actually, for instance, in Yemen, uh, you have 40% malnutrition rate. A $40 income for a family of 10 or 6 or 7, I don't remember the figure. Like a $40 income for a family. I mean, the family size, an average family size in Yemen is, is huge. So we have a situation where, uh, you, you know, you, you're having oil income and you're having a surplus, your balance of payment, which is the biggest constraint. A lot of these things, you know, are very dynamic and very fragile as well. The balance of payment situation is crucial. Uh, and uh, and a one-year uh, 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 shortage in foreign savings to boost the situation, to address a balance of payment problem, could, could for an import-dependent economy, it could be all driven into chaos. We, we, the, 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 under globalization, the balance of payment constraint has become the most relevant constraint. So these economies, despite the fact that they may look uh, uh, more, more uh, uh, diversified than others, but they still they have a balance of payment constraints with where with very little we can actually uh, uh, tune them one way or another or turn them one way or another. Would you mind if we if we just collect a few questions at a time because I'm I'm afraid that uh, otherwise we'll, we'll just completely leave out one portion or the other of the room. Uh, I mean. 
you're, you're free to address them individually. I'm just afraid because quite a few hands went up. No, you, you and, yeah. and we've only got about uh, a little less than 20 minutes left. So uh, first, the, the uh, lady with the. Um, thank you very much. It was really interesting. Um, my question there touches on the final comments you're making about causes of the intifada. Um, and I think in development, there's like Paul Collier and people have this theory, right, of like there's a higher rate of instability according to the percentage of youth in the population and percentage of employment or something. And the higher those are, the higher the risk of um, and I wonder how, I mean, I don't really buy that, but I wonder how relevant you think that is for what we're seeing and whether those kinds of theories will be applied in analysis um, of what's happening in the Arab world. Thank you. All right. Uh, so, Jeff, I'm with the glasses in the last row. Um, um, thank you very much. My name is Alma Hemez. I'm from Capital Business Strategies Limited. Um, I'm involved in the Middle East uh, quite a lot, um, most recently in Iraq, actually. Um, I think, uh, if I may say so, um, quite a few observations are indisputable about income distribution, low productivity, etc., etc. But I'm rather um, confused, in fact, verging to um, disturb about some of the figures that have been floated um, around, and probably the conclusions that may be, particularly policy conclusions, that may be that may rest on those kind of figures. So I'd very much like to ask the <coughs> Dr. Khalid to just comment on the following observations. The first one is uh, putting Iraq in the productivity table, where productivity went down by minus 6.9 on average between uh, 1980 and 2001, where the country entered two wars. And also, the country faced massive economic sanctions, and the industry was devastated. I'm not quite sure it would be possible, actually, to include that figure in the, in the, in the, in the table, which would bring, obviously, the average for all the countries down. That's the first one. So I'd like you know, to a response to that observation. There was a link between GDP growth of 3%, and the countries would be okay. Well, not in Saudi Arabia, where the population is growing at 3.1 or 2%. I'm not per quite sure that's a can I, can, I, can I just finish, if I may, please? Per capita, 3%. Yeah, per capita, yes. I know what you're saying. So, so I'm not quite sure whether that is, from an economics point of view, actually a, a tenable argument. The third one is the statistics about per capita income in Saudi Arabia. I've just received an email, which I requested actually for this purpose, and I'd like you to make an observation on these figures. Per capita income, real per capita income in Saudi Arabia is 23,826 US dollars, and in Bahrain it's 26,852, in Qatar it's right at the top. From memory it's about 60,000. So, whereas you said it has gone down from 18 to 6, 500. Um, so these are some of the ob observations, actually, which I think confuse me more than anything yeah, else about some of the conclusions you're reaching. Thank you very much. Um, now, Mohanad, uh, please keep your interventions very, very briefly, just in the interest of fairness and giving everyone that chance. I, I'll happily forego my own questions, but I want as many as possible of you to have them. Oh, yeah. It seems to me that the GCC countries are turned out to be very stable. 
evolutions, with the exception, of course, of Bahrain, <coughs> which has a superior. Uh, for, for instance, Saudi Arabia, with all the numbers that you gave, turned out to be a sort of an island of stability, uh, as, as the officials, as official statements say. And uh, I just have another question, which is, do you agree with the, with the statement that, in, in the end result, after six months of the um, start of those evolutions in December in Tunisia, that we are we ended up with two successful resolutions, revolutions, and, put, and potential civil wars and civil, you know, civil conflicts. Right. Do you want to briefly address the right? Uh, just uh, first of all, on the youth part, you're absolutely uh, correct. It's been actually over, uh, you know, over because to defend what is youth really? Because I mean. Of course, there is a particular entrant into the labor force. We measure these things as well. Uh, for every, for instance, five new jobs available, there are 15 people who are willing to take this job. And that's always been there. When you have unemployment, and under any condition, which is cyclical unemployment, that's what you're going to have, irrespective of the, of the age frame of the population. So this is an anemic structure. It's just a structure that doesn't produce jobs in the way productive economies produce jobs. So, uh, and since we, they were growing as well, growing very fast in the last 10 years as a result of the second oil war, at least the amount, this should have been tapered, you know, this, uh, this uh, sort of human <coughs> argument doesn't really work when you have high growth and increasing returns to scale and the capacity socially designed programs for labor at the higher. The uh, uh, Iraq figures, uh, uh, these are the only figures available on labor productivity, by the way, the ones I've shown. The labor productivity is another variable that's very difficult to measure. Can I refer you to the NDP 2010-2014, which is on the internet, right. by the way? For us, we need that yes. there, okay. and you'll find we the most a, recent figures. Right. We need a very high average. We need, a, we, we need an average over many years to basically show that productivity has been declining. And this, this is the table that the ILO provided us with. And this, this is all it has, really. So this is the table. There is no average really there. We've just shown country by country. We haven't taken the averages of all these countries. Another one is uh, the uh, per capita income at 3%. It is a convention that, that we use in the, uh, in, the, in the discipline that a per capita income of 3% is a com conventionally acceptable rate of growth. Uh, it's, there is no criteria for that whatsoever. And the per, the per capita income of, the so of Saudi Arabia, I've measured at the peak of 1981 and at the low point of around 2001, 2002. So this is just to show the fluctuations of per capita income with oil prices. So if now, if oil prices go back down, we're going to see another rollback in the per capita income. On the third question, which one is yeah, about Saudi Arabia. Right. I, I really, you know, the question of regimes stability uh, is, is, you know, it's a question of uh, what it does to stabilize itself. Now, if, if uh, again, if stability is derived from uh, people's uh, acquiescence to the situation, consent, uh, uh, voluntary consent to the situation, this I don't know, I don't, I don't get it because I'm not allowed to serve it. This is the people of, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, there's, there's, it's, a, it's an absolute monarchy, so it's very difficult to basically survey people in an absolute monarchy. Uh, and so, thank you. All right, so very crisp, very brief, and I, I would propose that we take five at a time, oh and we try to do that twice in the next 13 minutes, so that there's 10 more people we can take in, so, so please keep it super, super brief, uh, please, the gentleman in the front yeah.
Thank you very much for a most uh, challenging analysis. Uh, just one quick question. You have mentioned the United States towards the end of your lecture. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the role of Europe also and the international uh, system, international monetary system towards the Arab countries, for example, forcing privatization, liberalization, uh, and no protection of the local uh, industry, and uh, closing the, the borders in Northwest Europe. Uh, the capital can travel to the Arab countries, but not Arabs can't travel to Europe, this sort of thing. Great, thanks a lot. Uh, who else in the, in the middle section? I think we had a few more hands there. Yeah, the general. Just if you could comment on the, a very brief question, comment on the role of civil society and, and economic growth. Yeah. And lack of civil society. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyone else in the, in the middle area here? Uh, no? Okay, we'll move on to the next thing with dispatch. The gentleman with the I last, like an economist, let us assume that next year a uh, democratically elected government uh, sprouts in Saudi Arabia, for example. What would be the three core economic policies that you would suggest to that government? Very interesting question. Uh, Just, uh, we'll ask a question about what's your reading. Um, I mean, you mentioned about the economy in the Arab world is being fragmented, it's weak. Um, you're reading about the economy in the Arab world after the Arab Spring, and how is that um, affecting the economy? Um, the instability of the Arab Spring, uh, Spring as, a, as an example in Egypt, how did it affect, um, or how is it affecting right now the Arab economy? Great, thank you very much. So we take one last one. Thank you. Um, right, um, uh, has more or less dismissed the uh, economics as it, as it was called fueling uh, um, uh, the uh, intibada. They come to serious consideration. But where does, where does intibada come from? Is it uh, indigenous? It is, is it uh, what you call uh, uh, a foreign spire? Um, at least in terms of ideas. So uh, yeah, where does intibada come from? It's a come from, from the economic uh, I mean, the floor is yours for about five minutes. Oh, okay. Max, thank you. Uh, well, you know, the, the question of the US and Europe, as I said, you know, the problematic <coughs> area really is that for a long time there has been a violation of human rights in this, in this part of the world. Uh, on, on a gross scale of which everybody in the world was aware of, but because of the oil and the strategic, as a strategic commodity and the, uh, and, and the dimensions that it carries, somehow, uh, it, we couldn't actually bring the issue to the forefront of the debate. It was as if, you know, if, what if the United States no longer holds a stake there, ho controls things there? What will happen to the dollar and all of our savings uh, in the world are held in the dollar? So there is that the world was almost held hostage by the United States, which is an indebted information. And, and as a result of that, everybody acquiesced to the fact that the United States uh, and everybody else with it uh, has almost uh, overlooked the uh, human rights violation, including the denial of, of, um, of the right to development, right? And so th this only happens, I mean, you've, we've seen that this, this democracy, that the democratic uh, uh, process that we've seen now, 
It occurred everywhere else after the fall of the wall, but it, it didn't occur in the Arab world. While, while, while Africa, Latin America was democratizing, we were just sitting there, uh, and, and there's no pressure on any of these regimes to just allow municipal elections uh, at, the bare, at the bare minimum level. And, and these, they, because they were regimes were so detached and so from their own populations, because sovereignty is really, in the modern age, so much uh, derived from the legitimacy that regimes and states uh, uh, get from their own constituency, we have had a, a, almost non frail sovereignty regimes that cannot actually dictate to Europe the terms of travel of citizens, right? But the, Europe can dictate that because Europe actually draws its legitimacy from its own constituency. Now, the question on civil society, unfortunately, civil society is such a broad term. The, 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 the formation of autonomous civil society was almost suppressed, uh, you know, but there was, uh, in the devolving of differentiation through the distribution of rent, because rent regimes have to differentiate in order to survive on tribal, sectarian, uh, regional basis. They also, the regimes and the Western powers that actually supported civil society have almost worked hand in hand to make sure that the formation of civil societies breed division more than uh, cohesiveness in many respects. And so we haven't seen, for instance, everywhere else in the world where you've seen really a degradation of the real wage, we haven't seen uh, a, 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 an autonomous uh, trade union saying, look, we need, because most trade unions were appendages to the regime. And, and you can actually measure that. Uh, on uh, three policies for Saudi Arabia, you know, part of what, you know, so you don't, when you have this much money, you know, you can actually do miracles. Uh, uh, and what the, the principal policy, and, and actually almost three policies, is respecting the neighborhood effect. You know, you cannot be in Saudi Arabia with $26,000 per dollar, uh, dollar income against Yemen with a 40% malnutrition rate in children. There are certain things, the first thing I would, I would start with is the neighborhood effect. We know that the neighborhood effect allows for joint welfare improvements and, uh, and it's a necessary component of economic development. I will stop at there because I don't want to talk about what fiscal policy I want, what monetary policy, what employment policy I want as well in order to make sure that all the people that are having fun. So the neighborhood effect really is the most crucial effect for us uh, on uh, this, the spring. Oh, my, and tiny footnote on Saudi Arabia that might be interesting. Mm -hmm. There's that, that, that debating uh, right now, today, to which extent they could affiliate Morocco and Jordan to the Gulf Cooperation Council, but not Yemen. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're kind of circling the wagon around the, the, the rump conservative pro-Western camp that's left in the Arab world. And Saudi is emerging as the clear leader. Uh, uh, this, this spring, and you know, I mean, I mean, really, I, as I said, I can only, conditions have been bad for a long time. The conditions in 2002 were actually pretty, pretty bad. There is a component here that we've seen around, along the, the, the new Duvorish elite in the Arab world, which is because of the constraints on investments uh, in the Arab world, long-term investments and the stability that long-term investment and the money going abroad, there has been something called a Veblenian emulation of the rich classes 
in the Western world. So there was an ostentatious display of wealth, uh, nouveau riche wealth, to which people who are being were pauperized, that they were exposed every day. So I've seen, for instance, a Rolls Royce in Damascus, and with a, with a socialist economy, with nearly a 60% Gini coefficient. Uh, so it's you know it's one of the highest Gini coefficients in the world. So it's, so when you see that sort of popularization and at the same time ostentatious display, that's an element I think socially that is quite uh, because revolutions in the old textbooks uh, it always depend on the level of frustration a person feels and how develop, he de deploys this frustration into one form of action or another. I think on the economic level there is that level of frustration. The other level of frustration, of course, is everything is linked to the nomenclature and to the, to the client, uh, clientism. And the last question was about the meaning of intifada. No, well, well what are the, uh, the, what motivated uh, the intifada? What people brought about intifada? Right. I mean, you say it's not economic factors. No, no, it's, it is. It is, it is a, a totality of factors. It's an economic and social and political. Uh, it, it's very difficult for me to determine which factor holds determinacy and how did this moment of revolt come, come about. Because this is a very you know, uh, difficult question uh, to, uh, to investigate. Uh, in every case, will hold a different uh, uh, character than the other cases. Uh, but in fact, the Tunisian case, really, the, the success of the Tunisian case in many respects uh, is it actually had led people to believe that this fear barrier, this monolithic structure, is actually uh, <laughs> changeable. The letter of Ben Ali is, is the most amazing problem. Point if we're going to look for a spark. But the fact that how is consciousness formed, uh, like, you know, a good part of this, it, it, it really demystified the, the, the Arab person. And, and it situated him as a human being, not as a fundamentalist who wants to sort of explode things. Uh, it's someone who has cared, cares for democ democratic rights and for good living standards. And that's how most, most people are concerned with their own living standards, with their freedoms, and with the future of their children. And that's, you know, situated, de de reified the Arab, demystified the Arab. It's made it made just equal to, to everyone else. And that, I think, was one of the glorious achievements of, 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 of these processes. Now some, of course, are going to, when you have processes of this nature that are going to give power back to the people, you are going to have a, a lashback uh, from, from forces inside and outside, which is tremendous, which is going on now. Uh, there's all sorts of divisions that are going to be fomented. Uh, and I hope uh, that people will be steadfast in holding to the gains that they've achieved so far. Thank you. Thank you very much. Spot on. We have two minutes left to please join me uh, in thanking the speaker.